Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at Podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, July 14th, 2019, and this is show number 740. Well, Steve and I are back from our Chilean eclipse adventure, and I'd like to start the show by giving my heartfelt thanks to Alistair and Bart for providing you such great content while we were gone. I love a good streak, and I'm super proud that we've had the NoSilicast come out every single week for over 14 years without a single miss. Bart and Alistair are a huge part of why this is true. But more importantly, I love their shows. I got to tell you, it's really fun to sit back and relax and listen to such great voices provide fascinating content. I want to start with what I loved about Bart's show. I really appreciate that Joe Duganzik provided his excellent review of the cycle wing lights, especially on a show where cyclist Bart was hosting. That was a perfect matchup, especially since much of the year Bart is forced to ride his bicycle in the nighttime because of the latitude of Ireland. I was absolutely delighted to finally hear Wing's voice on the show, or as Bart affectionately refers to him, his darling beloved. I really enjoyed the cadence of Wing's delivery, the ups and downs of the story he told, the history of even coming to the iPhone in the first place from his beloved Nokia, and of course, the glowing review of the Powerbeats 3 headphones. I'm humbled by Bart's continued insistence that I'm an important part of his Security Bit segments. You and I both know... It's like 87.8% Bart and 2.2% me, but he is adamant that I add value to it beyond what I realize. I will graciously accept his point of view out loud, but I'm sure I will never truly believe it. Thank you, Bart, for all that you do. Now, I'd like to talk about Alistair's show, too, but I have to start by addressing the problem that happened, and that's the awful honking noise that occurred during Sandy's amazing review of the Airfly. You may or may not have heard this problem, as when I heard it, Sandy, Alistair, and I worked together to push out a version to the feed that fixed the problem. So let me characterize the sound and then tell you what we think happened. Unbeknownst to me, Sandy made her recording for Alistair several times, using QuickTime, but kept getting a hiss on the recording. After a couple of tries re-recording, Alistair decided to attempt to eliminate the hiss from within Apple's Logic software that he used to mix all the tracks together. He used a built-in equalizer and brought down the frequency of the hiss. He sampled the audio and logic, and it sounded good. But for some reason, on export, it caused one of the weirdest sound effects I have ever heard in all my years of recording. There was no problem for the first few minutes of Sandy's recording, but starting at 2 minutes and 13 seconds into her recording, you hear this slight, quiet, short honk. It happens every 3 seconds. The honk gets louder and slightly longer. Here's one of the earliest honks that you can hear. I bet you didn't barely hear that. Let me play it again. All right, you must have heard it the second time. But you'll definitely hear this. By the end of Sandy's recording, the honk is over one second long and completely overwhelms her voice. Let me play that for you now. Did you have any trouble hearing that one? Let me play it for you again. So this is the kind of thing... I simply have to figure out what caused this. I have to know what caused it because we can only make sure it never happens again if we know how it happened. Working with Sandy and Alistair on this, I want to point out how amazing it was that there was no finger pointing and no anger between anybody about this. Sandy had to have been discouraged that after all her hard work, the recording was ruined. Alistair has a very high bar for quality of audio, higher than mine actually, and I'm sure he was disappointed that it happened as well. 
but they were both helpful and seemed to be interested in finding the root cause. Perhaps maybe not as crazy as I am about getting to the root cause, but still very interested. Alistair went back into logic and did a couple of experiments in parallel with some testing that I did. Sandy's original content was an uncompressed AIFC file. When I opened it in Rogue Amoeba's Fission product, the auto waveform looks normal and it sounded great. That's her original recording. But then I thought, maybe I'll open it up and see if I can easily remove the hiss using the open source tool Audacity. Many, many, many years ago, so far back that my screenshots show the Aqua interface of Mac OS X, I wrote a tutorial called How to Remove Noise with Audacity. This recording, or I'm sorry, this tutorial is in the top five most visited pages on all of podfeet.com. In fact, I reread my tutorial myself often because it's not super intuitive how to do it, but once you read the instructions, it's super easy to execute these steps. When I opened Sandy's original AIFC recording in Audacity, I discovered something very curious. Somehow, QuickTime had not recorded mono, it had not recorded regular stereo, it had recorded four-channel stereo. Essentially, it was a surround sound recording from a single input. I wrote to Alistair about my discovery. I also sent him a lovely, hiss-free mono recording of Sandy to show off my noise removal skills from my tutorial. Not to show off, but to give him a tool for later use. And I sent him a link to my tutorial. This got Alistair going on some, some new experiments. He ran four tests using Logic. The first one, he removed the third and fourth versions of Sandy's recording, leaving only a stereo version, and turned the EQ off. And the exported file had no honking. Okay, so far so good. Then he removed the third and fourth versions, leaving only the stereo version, and he turned the EQ on. There's no honking. So the stereo version, with or without the EQ, doesn't make a difference. There's no honking. Then he left the stereo, uh, the surround sound version with all four tracks and turned the EQ off before export. Still, there's no honking. Finally, he did what he did in the original recording. He left surround sound version with all four tracks, turned the EQ on before export, and that does produce the honking. So it appears from the data we've been able to collect so far that a perfect storm occurred. Only the odd four-channel version of Sandy's recording pulled into logic and with the EQ applied will cause this digital honking. Now, Sandy and Alistair really enjoyed pointing out that every bit of the tools, 100% of the tools involved in the creation, manipulation, and production of this file were made by Apple. All of the hardware and all of the software. I got to tell you, I can't let this go yet. I need to know why this is happening. I've sent the files to Paul Figiani of Produce New Media. He's the most knowledgeable and most helpful audiophile I have ever met. He's the one who taught me about Auphonic, which allows me to create podcasts every week that meet the loudness standard for podcasting and have beautifully leveled audio. So you should like him too. I also dug into part of the problem from Sandy's point of view, and I think I found the uh, the answer to what was going wrong, at least from her input file. We talked about it being a four-channel stereo uh, audio recording, which makes no sense when you're a single person sitting in front of a single mic. There's a little file called, or an application called Audio MIDI Setup. It's in your application folder, utilities folder. I don't know why this thing goes bad on its own, but it does. Remember when I was doing my test recording with the Zoom H4n Pro and I got the uh, audio, my audio recordings were this real high-pitched voice. And I told you about that 
program then because it turned out it had chosen 48 kilohertz instead of 44.1 kilohertz in audio MIDI setup. Anyway, I had Sandy take a look at her audio MIDI setup, and sure enough, the built-in microphone was set to four-channel 24-bit integer 44.1 kilohertz. That really should be two-channel at most stereo, and it should be 16-bit integer. So I had her set that change that setting. So hopefully that will never happen again. And if it was a stereo file, and then uh, Alistair applied his EQ, we should be fine in the future. Anyway, uh, back to the thing about Paul. I will update the blog post and the podcast when I hear back from Paul. But for now, I'm going to leave you with one really funny thing. After I sent my tutorial on noise, noise removal using Audacity to Alistair, he sent me this message, and I'm quoting, After listening to the latest Mac Power users, I decided I would revisit using Safari's reading list function. Upon opening it, I already had a bunch of stuff saved to read, so I went back to the start. There, amongst the Mavericks tips and iOS 7 reviews, was a post on podfeet.com about removing noise from audio using Audacity. So I had intended to read it, and now I have. I can tell you one more thing. If you had followed me on Twitter at Podfeet, or were a member of our Slack group at podfeet.com slash Slack, or were a member of our Facebook community at podfeet.com slash Facebook, or were signed up to get the Podfeet Press newsletter at podfeet.com slash Podfeet Press, you would have been notified really soon after the show was produced that a new version was available with Sandy's lovely voice with no honking whatsoever. Now, after all that, I want to thank Alistair for his GTA car, uh, car kit review and his Pixelmator Pro review that caused me to spend $5 on an iPad app. The Glitch.com review from Caleb highlighted a programming tool that has become indispensable to me in the last two weeks. To refresh your memory, Glitch allows you to post code and run it on the web in a free account. Just this week, Bart was trying to help untangle my brain on how to write mustache templates, and we just jumped on Glitch.com and I got to watch him write code real time. As he wrote the code, Glitch showed the web view of what he was doing. It was a fantastic way for me to learn. Dorothy and I have also been using it as a way to test the games we've written in Programming by Stealth as viewed on iOS. Fantastic clip, Caleb. And then Alistair's description of how he creates web versions of his photos while on travel, making a backup along the way, and then using his Mac at home using Hazel to process the photos using RetroBatch. Retro that was pure genius. I loved every minute of it. So, once more, my heartfelt thanks to Bart and Alistair and the Nocilla Castaways who lent a hand to make their jobs easier. I couldn't have been happier. Well, okay, without the digital honking, I guess I would have been a little bit happier. I've got two chit-chat across the ponds to catch you up on. The day I got back from our Chilean vacation, I published Chit Chat Across the Pond number 601 featuring Dr. Marianne Gary, self-proclaimed crusher of dreams. This time, she's back to tell us about how she thinks science is broken. She makes that statement based on her concerns about how papers are chosen for what she calls saw-your-arm-off publications, those publications that are the pinnacle of publication. As always, she backs up her points with lots of research and facts, because she's funny that way. You can find this dream-crushing episode in the Chit Chat Across the Pond light feed in your podcatcher of choice, or listen via the link on podfeed.com. This weekend, we have another installment of Programming by Stealth, where Bart Bouchotts taught us more about promises, this time with a capital P. Capital P promises are designed to solve the problem of an API that requires a promise as an input, but your code already has the value you want to provide, so you don't have a promise. 
Now, that sounds funny, but it makes sense in Bart's description. After that, he shows us how we can control parallel, parallelization of promises using promise.all with a capital P. It's a very sensible lesson and not brain-bendy at all, even though I've done kind of a brain-bendy way of describing it. Anyway, look in your podcatcher of choice for Chit Chat Across the Pond number 602 under the Programming by Stealth feed or listen via the link on podfeed.com. Dumb. 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 Dumb questions. Dumb questions. Dumb questions. Dumb What is? How come I always have to? It's time for Dumb Question Corner. Well, this week, Steve Davidson sent in our great dumb question. I define great as clearly explained without an obvious answer, and yet I eventually figure it out. Here's Steve's question. Hi, Allison, I have a stumper for you. Using my iPad, I frequently find myself putting together a document by drawing information from multiple sources, you know, like planning a vacation by copy and pasting information from various websites. More often than not, unless I jump through hoops, the end product looks like a ransom note with different font sizes, line spacing, fragments of a table, etc. I find this happens using Apple Notes, Microsoft OneNote, Pages, etc. There are a few tools that strip away formatting when pasting in content, Notability, for example, but it is hit or miss with most applications. And there are reasons like sharing and collaboration for using OneNote, uh, OneNote or Notes. You can't use Notability for everything. On the Mac, you can always paste without or match style or paste as plain text by using the Command-Shift-Option-V combination key or select it from the edit menu. But I have yet to find a means of pasting just plain text into the Target app on iOS. Is there a way to do this very obvious thing? I suspect a lot of people have the same question, which makes it a good candidate for Dumb Question Corner. What do you think? Well, I love Steve's description of his notes looking like a ransom note with all the changes in formatting. That really explains what a problem this can be, and we can all picture it. With many people, I assume they just didn't try the obvious things. You know, like, I don't know, try a long hold with a finger to change what pasting options there are. But Steve is a reasonably bright fellow. And of course, none of my obvious solution attempts panned out. I did some of the Googles, and I found a solution that didn't work very well, but after a bit of tweaking, I was able to improve on it. The idea is to use Siri shortcuts to perform the task. I guess they're called shortcuts now, but it doesn't seem obvious if you don't say it. Anyway, there are three simple steps to my shortcut. Get get clipboard, get text from input, copy to clipboard. Now, it sounds funny to get the contents of the clipboard and then turn around and copy the contents right back to the clipboard, but it's that middle step that does the magic. Shortcuts includes many options to make plain text into rich text or make plain text or rich text into Markdown or HTML, but there is no option to take rich text and turn it into plain text, which is what we want. It turns out that get text from input does strip out the formatting, but that isn't explicitly explained in the documentation that'll provide this function. Once these three simple steps are assembled, we can choose from three different ways to implement our shortcut. Entering settings for a given shortcut is done via a non-standard icon on the screen. It looks like two toggle switches flipped in the opposite directions. Once you find it, you can toggle on the options to show the shortcut in widgets and in the share sheet. You can also set a Siri phrase. If you tap this option in settings, you'll be invited to record a phrase, which you can then later use to invoke the shortcut. I played around with all three of these options, widget, share sheet, and Siri. Siri works pretty well, surprisingly. 
To initiate the shortcut via Siri, select and copy the text you want to copy, activate Siri, and say your Siri phrase. She'll tell you when she's done, and then you need to swipe away to get to the app where you want to paste. It's pretty easy. I recorded three little videos to demonstrate each of these methods, by the way, and they're in the show notes. In the first one using Siri, the recording function uh, built into iOS doesn't record while Siri is being invoked, so you'll see a moment of silence or hear a moment of silence during the good part where she does recognize my voice. Interestingly, in my test, Siri never failed to understand what I was telling her. I can only assume it's because I was the one who recorded the phrase, so she didn't have like interpretation to do. Even with a high success rate for this method, a lot of people don't like talking to the devices. You might also need this function during meetings or in social situations where talking to your phone would be inappropriate. The, me- the widgets method works okay, but it's actually my least favorite of the options. Maybe if I use widgets more often, it would become second nature, but I can never seem to find widgets. After copying the text on an iPhone 10 or 10s, I forget what it's like on the other phones, you swipe down from the top left and you'll see your notifications. At this point, I always incorrectly swipe on that screen and it opens the notification my finger slid across. I have to do it a second time, stare at the screen for a while, and then remember that you swipe left to right across this time, I'm sorry, across the time to get to widgets. So you can't swipe on a notification, you have to swipe on the time to get over to widgets. Then if you have a lot of widgets, you have to scroll through them till you get to your shortcuts and tap on the correct one. Then swipe up to get out of widgets, and finally, you can now paste your text. That is a lot of swiping. Now, by this time, some of you are yelling at your devices. I can hear you. I only figured out while I was testing this, accidentally while I was doing something else, that if you simply swipe left to right on the home screen, that gets you directly to widgets. So I might try widgets again, but it's still a lot of swiping around. The share sheet option requires the fewest number of separate steps. Select the text and copy it. Tap the share sheet icon, tap shortcuts, tap the newly created shortcut, and then paste in your chosen location. So that's only three more taps than a single copy and paste, and there's no swiping at all. As usual, I've made this much more complicated than necessary by over-explaining it, so let me summarize. To copy and paste plain text, create a three-step shortcut, add it to the share sheet. Might even be easier than remembering the Command-Shift-Option-V to paste special on the Mac. Whenever I go on one of our big adventures, I learn something new about the tech I want to use on travel and how to get it to work the best for me. Might not be as cool as the stories that Alistair told, but I still really enjoy talking on this topic. It's an evolving story that I think is helpful to document. This isn't one nice, cohesive explanation, but rather a list of disparate items that affect how to attack the problems of tech on a big trip. This year's trip was to Chile to see a total eclipse of the sun. While in Chile, we toured three major telescope facilities and traveled from the shore to the middle of the Atacama Desert to a mountain at 16,500 feet. In order to achieve this task, we took seven plane flights, stayed in four different hotels, spent two nights on planes, and rode 1,219 miles on a tour bus. Before we embark on an adventure of this magnitude and complexity, I like to make a diagram of the trip. We usually have a nicely written multi-page description of the trip, but a diagram gives us situational awareness at a glance. Where are we on this trip? What's our next flight? It's all on one page. You may think me anal, and I probably am, but it is ever so helpful on the trip to know just what's about to happen and when. Back in August of 2016, I told you about an amazing web app called Draw.io 
at draw.io. That's it. Draw.io. Everything good's at I.O. Anyway, think OmniGraffle with fewer features, but completely free of cost. It doesn't work well on Safari, but it's not half bad on Chrome. The app allows you to drop in rectangles and other shapes, other graphics, and most importantly, lines with arrows that magnetically connect the blocks of information. I settled a long time ago on rounded rectangles with a nice gradient blue for the city names, bright yellow rectangles containing the hotel information, bright green rectangles with white text that ride on the arrow lines for the flight numbers and dates, and this year I added salmon-colored rectangles for the daily excursions. One of the most important features of the diagrams in uh, is the red sequential numbers I place along the lines so you can follow along on the trip. On each arrow line, I not only put in the green flight info and the red numbers, I also put times and dates if there are flights on that line. I remember when we flew into Tahiti after being in New Zealand and crossed the international date line, that date on the line actually kept us from booking the wrong night at a hotel in Tahiti. As I'm building up the diagram, I often realize I've not left enough room for some information or it's too crowded in one spot, or perhaps the location on the diagram doesn't represent the direction of travel as well as it could. Now, if you're careful when creating the connecting lines in Draw.io, they will be magnetically attached to the boxes. That means you can drag the boxes around on screen and the arrows will mostly follow along and keep their flight numbers and sequence numbers and dates attached. It's not perfect, and it does take some fiddling around, but with some practice, you've, I've gotten pretty good at it. I have to say, this is the same thing that's a little fiddly in OmniGraffle as well. On this trip, I whipped out my diagram about 30 times, and I was happy every time that I had it available. I printed it out and put it in a lovely plastic sleeve, but I also put it in Google Drive and marked it for offline viewing. A few people on our tour seemed to think that it was cool, or at least humored me when I showed it to them. On one of the early small plane flights, I ran into a couple of doctors who were on parallel trip tours with us, but from one of the big Ivy League schools, and they loved it. I don't know if I mentioned we were traveling with UCLA alumni, so it's still a pretty cool school. Anyway, these doctors from this Ivy League school didn't just say that they loved it to shut me up on the plane flight either. The woman wrote down Draw.io in a notebook when I told her about it. Then, near the end of the trip, I ran into them again, and the the, uh, woman doctor introduced me to a friend of hers and said, oh, oh, this is the woman that made that awesome trip diagram I was telling you about. So there, they really did think it was cool. I got to tell you, I even used Draw.io to diagram our Christmas holiday adventures. We have six adults, one baby, three dogs, and two cats that have to be accounted for, and we have quite a juggle to make sure that everyone's family and in-laws' families get some portions of everyone's time. It's really quite hilarious that we require this level of effort, but the diagram did once reveal that Lindsay's dog Dodger was driving himself to wine country if we didn't take him into account correctly. If you do any kind of complex trips, I highly recommend Draw.io for making a diagram. When we went to the Galapagos in Ecuador and Machu Picchu in Peru, We discovered, because of my diagram, that our travel agent had neglected to actually book two of our flights in those countries. Well, two camera items really paid off on this trip. I carry my iPhone, of course, but I also travel with my big girl camera, an Olympus EM5 Mark II. For the very first time ever, I remembered to go into the camera settings and change the time on that camera. You see, in Apple Photos, images are sorted by the date and time they were taken. So without doing this ahead of time, my Olympus photos and my iPhone photos would not be sequentially next to each other in the right time order. 
I am very pleased with my little self that I remembered it because this is the first time ever that I've remembered to do it before I left. This time, I even remembered to change it back when I got home. The second camera-related item is something I cannot take credit for. Credit goes to my friend Diane. A few years ago, we went on a trip to Yellowstone and Grand Teton. In preparation for the trip, she bought a pair of plastic rain covers for big girl cameras because she was worried there might be rain. And she was right. She gave one to me. These rain covers are essentially a big plastic sleeve with both ends open. You slide the plastic sleeve over the camera, and on the end where the lens is, there's a small drawstring that allows you to pull it tight around the end of the lens. And that allows you to actually take photos, but the the lens is the only thing exposed. The other end of the sleeve has a much larger opening, which allows you to get your hand and your arm inside to manipulate the camera. And so you can even pull out the zoom and hit the shutter. I keep my rain cover folded up neatly in my camera bag, but that bag is too bulky to go on travel with me. In a stroke of genius, I pulled the rain cover out and put it in my backpack before we left. At one point on the tour, we went out in 14-foot fishing boats in very high seas to Isla Choros and Isla, uh, Isla Damas to see the local wildlife. Many of the jolly travelers got soaked with waves. Now, my new EM5 is actually water-resistant, but my lens is definitely not. I was fairly shielded from those big waves, but the amount of spray could have easily destroyed my lens, and I'm pretty sure the salt water probably wouldn't have been too good for the camera either. But I had Diane's rain cover. I put a link in the show notes to the one she got me. They're only seven bucks for a pair on Amazon. It's a good thing I had that link because the cover blew off as I got out of the boat. I immediately replaced these. Speaking of things I lose often near the beginning of the trip, I explained to one of my new friends that I always lose lens caps on travel. I told her I've trained my friends to listen to the sound of me dropping it when I bump it off as I swing my camera around as I hike and walk. Evidently, this friend was not that alert. I lost a lens cap partway through the trip. I pretty much buy them by the sleeve now. This is the eighth time I have replaced that single lens cap. In 2017, Mike Elgin came on Chit Chat Across the Pond and told us about something called Google Fi, a SIM card he recommended for international travel. I I acquired my own Google Fi card and wrote a blog post about it back then, and I've been using it ever since. It is so awesome that I actually loaned it out to my friends. My buddy Ron took it and used it in Australia, Dorothy used it in Scotland, and Naraj used it in Morocco. I'm bringing it up because I wanted to give you an update on how it works because it has changed a bit, and perhaps you didn't hear about it two years ago. Here's the deal now. You ask Google for one of the SIM cards for free at 5.google.com, or you can buy one for $10 at Best Buy. If you buy one, that $10 goes towards your first bill, so it's the same thing. The first card you get is a voice and data card, but you can get as many additional data-only cards as you want. One big advantage of these extra data cards is that you can share this single data plan with the family. You don't have to acquire a separate card with each separate payment for each person. I said family, but you can share it with anybody, right? You got a group going, you can all share one plan. The FI service costs $20 per month, and then you pay $10 per gigabyte. Here's what's amazing, though. That fee of 20 bucks per month is prorated. So if you only need the service in for a week in Bermuda, it's only one-fourth of $20 or five bucks for that time. And the data usage is prorated linearly as well. You do not buy it in chunks. For example, if you use 3.2 gigabytes, that's $32. It's very inexpensive and very reasonable the way they arrange it. But here's the huge improvement they made to the plan. Once you hit six gigabytes, 
They don't charge you any more during that billing cycle. They don't even start slowing you down until you hit 15 gigabytes. Now, Steve and I weren't cautious at all with our data usage in Chile, and we sort of forgot to turn off iCloud syncing of our documents and desktops. We took a ton of photos that went whooshing up and down to the internets and back, and Wi-Fi in the hotels wasn't very good, so we used our data plan a lot. Combined, we used 20.5 gigabytes in 12 days. Our total bill was $83.61, including taxes and fees. Now, they made one other improvement and took one thing away. When I originally got the Google Fi cards, you had to buy an Android phone to initialize the card, and it had to be one very specific set of Android phones sold by Google. I bought the cheapest one, a Google Nexus 5X. Once you initialize the cards, though, you could plop them in an iPhone and you're ready to go. Recently, Google announced native support for iOS. This means you don't have to buy an Android phone phone if you don't want to. The bad news is that when they started official support for iOS, they took away the ability to tether. If you're a sane person, you travel with an iPhone and maybe an iPad, but Steve and I aren't sane. We carry along our laptops too, so tethering is an essential ingredient to our entertainment. I brought the Nexus 5X I bought years ago on the trip, and by a twist of fate, I had accidentally bought the one with the European plug, so it worked great in Chile. It's USB-C, so it's easy to swap out, but it was still nice to have one device that I didn't have to tack onto an adapter. I mentioned that Google slows you down after 15 gigabytes, but to be honest, we have pretty poor connectivity in Chile, so it didn't matter much to us. In other countries like Peru, we had lots of LTE and Google Fi worked great. When I was double-checking my facts on Google Fi for my notes, I realized that they have an affiliate program. If you've been intrigued enough by my praise for Google Fi to check it out for yourself, it would be really swell if you use the affiliate code I put in the show notes. I almost forgot to mention, you can use Google Fi inside your home country as well. I think I might keep it on since I have a SIM slot and my new iPad mini. Fun to have cellular back on the iPad. I mentioned that Steve and I tote laptops on big trips, and we both have really good excuses for doing that. I write a very lengthy travelogue when we go on our big trips. It's very entertaining. Here's a totally unbiased email I got about it this year. Quote, I cannot tell you how much I have enjoyed your emails about your trip. I've looked forward to each day's adventures. I really have learned a lot from you and have laughed a lot. You have such a great way of making your adventures fun and exciting. Okay, that was from my cousin Anne-Marie, but still, okay, I did get fan mail about it. Anyway, on this trip, I wrote about 10,000 words total, and I insert photos throughout my monologue to entertain people. I don't think I could do as good of a job with an iPad, especially pulling in photos from my big girl camera and editing them. If you're a glutton for punishment, you can download an EPUB version of my travelogue. If you click the link in the show notes, it should open in Apple Books on an iOS or macOS device. Not sure what happens on other devices. The book is quite large, 90 megabytes because of all the embedded photos, so it may take a minute or two for you to see open in iBooks on screen. Steve takes videos on these trips, including using a big boy video camera and a GoPro Hero 5, and he also takes 360 photos using his Ricoh Theta S. It's not practical to edit and move video and photos like the 360 ones using iOS. Even if it was, Steve truly hates using iOS on an iPad. Actually, he hates using iOS. Total. Anyway, when we did the Galapagos Machu Picchu trip, we debated long and hard on whether to take our nearly new MacBook Pro laptops with us, which we really wanted to do. But we finally decided to take our older spares. 
Steve carried an old MacBook Air, and I carried my 2013 MacBook Pro. We certainly made the right decision. You may remember that Steve's backpack got stolen in the airport in Cusco, Peru, and amongst other electronics, his old MacBook Air was in that bag. Needless to say, we did not take our no longer new but still pretty young MacBook Pros with us on our trip to Chile either. I used my 2013 MacBook Pro again, which shockingly is still really, really good. I know I'm supposed to hate the new MacBook Pro keyboards, but I don't. I do truly dislike the old spongy keyboards from 2013, though. I feel like I'm typing by remote control. It's so unclicky. I also truly, truly hate having dedicated ports. No USB-C back then, so I only had two USB-A ports instead of potentially four, and I had the MagSafe connector that I used to think I loved, but I really hate it now. Every single time I went to plug in power, that darn thing was on the wrong side, and I had to drag a cable across my lap. Last Christmas, we gave Kyle a new 13-inch MacBook Pro, and I took back the 2015 12-inch MacBook I'd given him. Steve used that laptop as his device of choice on the trip. It wasn't exactly the video powerhouse he was used to, but I didn't hear a single complaint from him about it. I had given him the choice of carrying the 14-pound 2013 15-inch MacBook Pro, but he went for the lower power but super light version of the MacBook instead. He said, it was better than an iPad. Well, speaking of iPads, I brought two with me. I like to travel light, you know? I brought the 12.9-inch iPad Pro with the awesome Apple keyboard, and I actually used it a lot. I said it was essential that I had my laptop with me so I could write my long letters, but I actually did a fair bit of writing on my big girl iPad. On normal trips, I have a few hours of downtime each day to do my writing, but on this trip, every single spare moment was spent on the bus getting from here to there. If I was going to get the letters out daily, I would have to leverage that time. I wrote my letters in Apple Notes, and it was very, very easy to hand Steve the iPad to check my work and make suggestions. And of course, yes, he did complain about having to work on an iPad, but it was an easy way for us to do it sitting side by side on the bus. Now, I couldn't easily insert photos, so I just made notes of insertion points and finished them up on my Mac when we reached our hotel. When I bought the iPad Mini this year, I asked the question of whether it had a place in my life. I have to admit that I'm not using it nearly as much as I said I would during that article. Without a real keyboard, I don't gravitate towards it. It's actually harder to type on than an iPhone. Without a real keyboard, it just, I don't know, I don't like typing on the glass with all my fingers. It's too small. I don't know. In fact, on this trip, I never once took it out of my bag. I even forgot I'd carried it on the trip when I went through security on the last leg of the trip, so that was really swell. Got myself the extra strip search for that one. I loved the entire trip to Chile, and especially the tours of telescopes and the astrophysics lectures, but the real star of the show, if you'll forgive the pun, was the total eclipse of the sun. We drove to a town called Vicuña and to a place within the town called Alpha Aldeal. It's an astronomical center. All of the university alumni associations were there, each with a dedicated white tent with elegant table settings for a dining pleasure, and each tent had a dedicated standing area for the eclipse. It was extraordinarily civilized. I forget if I talked about it on the show or if Bart or Alistair talked about it, but Bart asked Steve to come on Let's Talk Photography to explain how he uses time-lapse photography, and specifically what he's done in the past with the eclipses we viewed. we have viewed. It's a great interview, I may be biased, but you can find it at the link in the show notes to let's-talk.ie on episode number 69. 
Now, I was going to tell you all about how Steve recorded the uh, Chilean eclipse this year, but he has decided to write a blog post and do a recording for us for next week's show. So I'm going to save that. This will be our little teaser to hear how he makes compelling videos about a Chilean eclipse. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Shots. I've missed uh, chatting with you, Bart. You did a great job without me. Well, well, thank you, but it's really not the same without you. So I'm, I'm really happy to have you back because we have lots of fun stuff to talk about this week. So you always say, but I still think it's like 98.2% you and a little bit left over of me. But I will, uh, I will graciously say you're welcome for the tiny little part I add to this. No, I, I, it's... The knowledge may be in there, but I don't get it out half as good without your help. Oh, well, uh, yeah, sure. I'll take 50% credit. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, anyway, right. I think you had a good time as well, judging by your missives. It certainly looked like a fun holiday. So uh, well, I was glad to see that. Yeah, yeah. You definitely, you gave me a vacation. You and Alistair did that. So I appreciate sure. it. Actually, and I really enjoyed Alistair's show as well. So it was great. Yeah, yeah. All right. So security, let's have some okay. fun. Right, so the first one is half a security medium and half of a follow-up. Um, so we talked quite some time, well, not quite some time ago, a few weeks ago about Apple removing um, parental control apps that used MDM as a mechanism for parental control because there are security issues with that. Um, yeah, basically, there's a bit more nuance to this story than a lot of the reporting I've seen. So there's been a lot of very lazy reporting, and that makes me cranky. So I thought it was worth doing in a little more detail than I normally would. Okay. So I'm actually going to tell it as a story, because you can't understand what happened this week without understanding how we got to now. All right. And even if so, we knew before, we probably forgot anyway. So are <laughs> the, the details that add to the nuance, right? Yeah, exactly. So sort of a Cliff Notes version of history, and then we can move forward. So we don't know the full detail because a lot of this happened not in the public eye. It sort of became a a quote-unquote gate when the New York Times published (laughs) a very poorly researched story in April. And then it suddenly became a thing. But the events didn't happen in April. It's just that in April it caught, you know, the way these things snowball on social media. So since April, it's been a, I'm sure someone has a gate suffix for it, but it's been a faux scandal since April. But anyway, what we've been able to piece together is that in approximately April of 2018, Apple became aware of the potential for parental control apps to abuse MDM APIs to compromise user privacy. And so during the remainder of 2018, Apple investigated the issue and then started to quietly contact developers, asking them to stop using MDM. And then as the year came to an end, they went from quietly asking to saying, you have, I think it was 10 weeks to stop doing this or we're taking your app out of the store. And a lot of the companies... I don't think I knew that before. I think I I thought... I definitely said it when we talked about it last, but the New York Times didn't bother with that. Yeah. Well, I think you supposed that they did, and I argued with you that we didn't know... There was something I remember arguing with you about, as I do, but anyway. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't remember the details. Um, okay. But some of the some of the developers were like, yeah, but the, our app doesn't do what it, we wanted to do without these APIs. And I was like, fine, goodbye. You know? And so they threw them out of the store. 
And then there was a whole big hoo-ha on the New York Times because their theory of the universe, which they never actually supported with anything, was that Apple were doing this to be anti-competitive because that way they were boosting the uh, popularity of screen time, which is a feature Apple don't monetize in any way and cost them money to provide. (laughs) I always thought that was a weak excuse because screen time doesn't do the kind of stuff that these tools do anyway. It does some of, but no, you're right. It, it's yeah, it, it it never made any sense. And I know I'm a big fan of follow the money. And if you follow the money here, it just goes fizzle. <laughs> There's okay. no money to follow. This right. is not a revenue stream. This is not a conflict of interest here. This is actually about security. And it revolves around the fact that the MDM mobile device management APIs are designed for an organization to manage devices owned by the organization. And in these cases, you have developers using the APIs to manage devices owned by parents being used by their kids. And that's a very different relationship. And so the APIs aren't really in the right way. So if you use those APIs morally, they can achieve your goal, but you're placing a trust in the developer that you may not realize you're placing in the developer. Right. They didn't really tell them that. That wasn't really very well disclosed, right? Right, because that would make a very difficult brochure. Yeah, exactly. So Apple, one of the things that happened then between April and now that didn't catch much attention, it caught my eye, but it didn't catch much attention, is that during WWDC, one of the things mentioned, and I believe it was the State of the Union rather than the big public keynote, was that Apple were revising the rules for the use of the MDM APIs. And they said that you could use it for parental control if you confined yourself to certain aspects of the API and if you submit it to extra scrutiny from Apple of your app. So basically the review process is more stringent. Hmm. Okay. And that's a very sensible way to have your cake and eat it in this case. Because then Apple can verify that you're not using the bits of the API that are utterly inappropriate. And since the, the developers of these apps are saying, but we don't we're not interested in spying on people. It's like, yeah, but you could. Yeah, but we don't want to. Okay, fine. Well, we will prove to ourselves that you're not abusing these APIs and therefore you can go ahead and provide this functionality. So it's a very sensible approach. I wonder whether some of the developers suggested that, said, you know, hey, look, we'll go open kimono with you. We'll show you what we're doing. Yeah, there's no way. I don't think there's, an, we may find that out, I guess, in the yeah. future, but we certainly don't know that now. It's a very plausible way these things could go. I mean, developer relations have changed a lot over the years, particularly since Phil Schiller took them over. It's a much more two-way street than it used to be, so it's it's absolutely not inconceivable. Okay. Anyway, so at WWDC, Apple said that this pathway was available, but you would get extra scrutiny. Well, the first app passed that extra scrutiny this week and oh. was approved back into the App Store, providing third-party parental controls using the MDM APIs under the hood. Do we know the name of it? Our Pact. Our pact. Huh. Yeah. So that is an interesting development. Now, the way this has been reported is Apple do a U-turn on MDM. Sort of no. like, no, that's not what happened. It's not what happened. And the other one that's even worse, clearly there was never a security problem with MDM because Apple just let an app into the store. It's like, that's even uh, more lazy. Oh, that's annoying. Yes. So this is why I felt we needed to go back in time, roll forward and take it from there. So anyway, now you you could say they took a 90 degree turn, right? You know, they split the difference between zero and 180. You could maybe say that. 
I would say they they basically solved the problem and moved forward, which is sort of what Apple have been doing. They're very incremental. Like the App Store has been a very incremental process, and it's often involved locking stuff down, evaluating, and then reopening in a controlled way. Yeah, yeah. Actually, that is consistent. You're right. Yeah, so you know, and I'm not surprised. The other thing I expect the next shoe I think will drop is that uh, the next WWDC there's going to be fresh APIs. I bet you to oh, they allow give you partial. Well, no, they give you parental control without MDM because MDM is just it's a it's a byproduct of what MDM yeah. is really for. It's like somebody so if was you were clever to write... and figured out something to do with it, but that wasn't his in, its intended use. Exactly. So if Apple mm-hmm. were to make a set of APIs whose sole function was parental control, A, they could give better feature set because that's actually what it's for. Mm-hmm. And B, they could protect privacy much better because it's not MDM. Right, so I right. would not be, I, w- I would in fact be surprised if we don't get a parental control API, hmm. like parent kit or something. <laughs> and they probably have a better name, but I, I'm pretty sure that's going to be the next shoe to drop. But we, as I say, we shall see. There was no way they could have got it ready in time for this year's WWDC, but I think iOS 14, I think that's very plausible. I hope you're right. So that, sounds, that, would be, that would be ideal. Yeah. Okay, so now the security medium I had planned to do. Um, I'm really interested in this one. So this is a really big story, right? So Zoom and another app called Ring Central. Um, but Zoom seems to be the really, really popular app, so that's getting all the headlines. Um, their Mac client was being naughty. So I guess we should just tell the story in the order we learned about it, maybe. Let's, so Let's give one, one piece up front. Zoom is a uh, video conferencing, audio conferencing tool that actually a lot of podcasters use. Um, yes. I'm not fond of it, but several podcasts I've been on have said, no, that's the way we do it. We do it with Zoom. Come on, please let us use it. But uh, it's it's just a tool. It's like a Skype, for example. A Skype, a Google Hangouts, GoToMeeting. Yeah, maybe even more of a GoToMeeting kind of thing because you send somebody a link and they join by that link. And that's important to the plot. Yeah, actually, yeah, GoToMeeting is probably the best analogy. And I come across it an awful lot in the business community. Um, a, lo- a lot of vendors and stuff, like, uh, you know, not your big corporations, but your your small one, you know, your, your Soho companies would tend to use it as their solution for meetings online. Yeah, it costs for anything longer than something like 40 minutes, I think. So not a lot of podcasters using your podcasters that do short interviews. Yeah. Or they pay for it, of course. Or, yeah. yeah. So this week, security researchers announced that they had found some serious vulnerabilities in the Mac client for Zoom. So when you double click an installer and it says, please enter your password, you're entering into a trust relationship with that installer because you have just given it the keys to your digital house. And it's now off to do whatever it wants. Now, there's a certain implicit understanding here where if an installer for an app asks you for permission, you assume it's asking permission to install the app. Mm -hmm. But of course, there's no reason that it can't also do other things behind your back, unfortunately. So we discovered, or rather the security researchers discovered, that as well as installing the client that the user sees, so the .app file in your applications folder, it also installed a small little web server that started listening on a port on your Mac. 
And it wasn't even well engineered because, I mean, it sounds weird to non-developers to have a web server running on your Mac, but actually it's quite common to use a web server for inter-process communication. Uh, I don't know if it's still true, but there was a time in 1Password's history where the mechanism that the browser plugin used to talk to the master 1Password app was through HTTP on a local port, which you could correctly describe as a web server, right? If it talks HTTP, it's a web server. Hmm. I did not know that. So it's actually quite a common pattern for inter-app communication. But the normal thing to do is that you would bind that web server to only accept incoming connections on the local host IP address 127.0.0.1. So you mean if 127.0.0.1 asked for something from the web server, it would respond, but if something else on your local network even asked for it, it wouldn't respond? Mm, No? That's not quite. So when you create a server process, you tell the operating system what IP address you're listening on. And the OS will never even contact the app if the communication isn't on the IP you're listening on. So when you go to a URL, there's a to IP address. Okay. So when you tell the operating system, I want to listen on port whatever, uh, you you also say what IP address you want to listen on. And if you're lazy, you say the IP address 0.0.0.0, which the operating system interprets as every IP address you got, I want the packets from. Okay. That would be a double. So the normal, the normal startup would be you tell the operating system, I want all packets to port 8080 with a destination IP of 127.0.0.1. So the operating system won't even give you packets that come to any other IP address. And 127.0.0.1, is, it only exists within the computer itself. It's an internal IP address. So it's impossible for a packet that didn't come from your computer to go to that IP address. Okay. So when you listen on 127.0.0.1, you are local. The internet does not exist to you. Okay. So it's not even that the packets are being thrown away. You're not even on the internet. You're not on the LAN. You're only inside the machine. This was listening on 0.0.0.0. Yeah. Now, because almost all of us have NAT routers, is the only reason this wasn't plastered across the entire internet. Your NAT router is acting as a one-way valve, so the damage is limited to just your LAN. So if you had a computer that was plugged directly into the cable modem, you would have mm-hmm. been listening on every to every port on every, just across the internet? Yeah, you would have been accessible from anywhere online, yeah. Unless your ISP was filtering the port. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's just bad. So there's so many, even now, right, we, we were only starting the story, and already we have malice and incompetence, as far as I'm concerned. Well, you haven't described so, the malice part yet. I want you, I oh, want no, you no, to get to that. I, I sort of have, but I want to I explain why. So running an installer to install a web server listening on a port, that's not normal for an installer to do. So I would say they never got informed consent to do this. Well, yeah, because there isn't anything in the app that says, hey, can I install a web server? Exactly. So even if they hadn't made any stupid mistakes, and they have made stupid mistakes, but even if they hadn't, we'd already be in a moral quandary here. So even if they had written perfect code and a web server without any security vulnerabilities, 
they would already be in the wrong. So you haven't. You're a little bit ahead of yourself. Oh no, yeah, we're you getting to the we're getting to the we're getting to what they did wrong. Right? So they, you haven't explained why they installed a, a web server yet. Right, exactly. But I, I, before we even go there and get lost in the stuff everyone else was talking about, I want to double underline the point that they installed something without getting informed consent. So they're already wrong before we get to all the things everyone else on the internet was talking about. So I'm, I'm being very careful not to fall into what everyone else was talking about because I really want to make this point. Which I now have, so let's move on. Um, so they would already be on my naughty list if they hadn't have messed up like they did. So from here on in, the messing up just continued. So they decided that it would be easier for their users if that pesky warning from Safari that comes up every time an app wants to use your webcam just wouldn't come up. So they wanted to have an app running all the time that could get permission once and then keep running and somehow have a mechanism for the web browser to talk to that sort of toehold permanently wedged into your computer. And that's what they use the web server for. So let me let me clarify one thing, Bart, is um, very specifically in the older versions of Safari, I think Zoom was able to do what they're doing without that web server thing. They could ask for uh, access to the webcam once and then it would just go, that's great with me. But now with Safari 12, it says, no, you have to ask for it each time. Is, is that right? Is my understanding correct? That was a change in Safari 12? There was a change. I'm not sure what the before state was. Okay. Was it that the webcam just worked in Safari? Or was it that every website got to ask once? I'm not sure exactly how it changed, but it definitely became more privacy aware with Safari 12. It, it, Safari 12 locked it down, but I don't remember exactly what the before was. So I'm confused, though, because I, I use other apps that do this, like um, uh, Google Hangouts, right? Yes. But I usually use Chrome, That's, so I wonder whether Chrome has, or Safari has to ask for that. Right. See, the different, the reason the web server exists is because the web server, the web server is an app that's permanently running, right? So an app that's not a web page in Safari is different to a web page in Safari. So Discord or the Skype app or what, what other example did you give there? Well, uh, Google Hangout, that's just in a browser. That would be similar to Flash Zoom. app. No, 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 because no, I don't have Flash installed. Or it's uh, well, it's one of those it's it's one of those funny um, modern um, modern modern version. web sockets or something. Yeah. I think it. Works. I, I won't speak to I won't speak to Hangouts because yeah. I, I I'm not comfortable speaking to Hangouts, but I can speak to stuff like Discord. Okay. So an individual app that's not a web page in a browser. So a standalone app gets permission once, and then that app has that permission, and you can control that using the privacy tab oh, in yeah. your uh, the security, the, the privacy bit in the security preference yeah, page. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, right. Okay, okay. So, so that web server is an always installed app on your computer that gets the permission once. And because it's listening over HTTP, it allows the web server to talk to the app behind the browser's back through that HTTP request. Basically an Ajax call. <laughs> Our old friend Ajax. So it's using the web server as 
a way to permanently hold on to the trust. And then the fact that it's soaking HTTP allows the web page to sneak that trust back to itself. Okay. So that's why they did it that way. But Zoom apparently is just a web app, but it's got a thing it installs locally that allows you to talk to it somehow? It bridges the gap. It it blurs the line massively. Yeah, okay. All right. Uh, Which is, I mean, they want to give you the feeling of, they want to give you all the advantages of a full app, but they want to do it so as much of it as possible happens as automatically as possible. And that's completely at odds with your security and privacy because random web pages shouldn't be able to turn on your mic and your webcam. <laughs> and so, so to be, to, to recap so far in the plot, cause you've got more to go. They installed mm-hmm. something that accessed, uh, put a web server on your Mac without telling you, um, mm-hmm. they wrote it poorly so that it was a huge security vulnerability. And they yeah, did we're it going to, to more than that in a moment. Oh, okay. So uh, this is all already pretty bad, right? So at this stage, they're bypassing really important privacy protections, but it gets worse. So the installer puts it there without getting informed consent, mm-hmm. but the uninstaller doesn't remove it. Oh, that's so. That's- if you remove the app, the web server stays behind, and that's not a a bug. That's a feature. Because that way, it can reinstall the app without your help if you receive a Zoom link. If you click on a Zoom link, it can reinstall itself as a service. This is on purpose. This is not Yes, this is the intention. Right. So they saw this as a feature, not a bug. So that came out, that information came out after the security researchers showed off the bug, right? That explained the vulnerability. So the security researchers reported to Zoom, and Zoom went, no, 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 that's not a security vulnerability, that's what we want. And they went, you're nuts, that's really dangerous, fix it or we're going public, and they went, no. So they went public, and then PR from Zoom responded with the most tone-deaf statement on planet Earth, where they basically went, no, 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 we're, we know our users. And we think that it's a much better experience to just have it all happen automatically and have your webcam just come on without a pop-up window and having the app just reinstall itself. That's what people want. And the internet went, no! Oh, wow. And then they climbed down. (laughs) Anyway, there's more naughty on the list, believe it or not. So by not tying it to 127.0.0.1, our NAT routers protected us from random strangers on the internet, but it didn't protect us from our colleagues on the LAN. So anyone sharing your LAN could send an appropriate uh, HTTP request to the web server on a known port and make it reinstall the client behind your back silently. Just pop a packet at your machine and off it goes to the internet to fetch and install an app you didn't want. Not necessarily Zoom. Well, no, I think... Well, okay. Um, Definitely Zoom. And if they were able to find a bug in the web server, they could then do other things because they could then take over the web server and trick it into doing something else. I don't quite know how buggy the web server was. And it's certainly hypothetically the risk. It's an attack surface that shouldn't exist. Right, right. Um. So as bad as that is, which is already pretty bad, it gets even worse. 
because if you ever, I think it's default behavior was that the first time you use Zoom, it would say, do you want to just automatically join meetings in future? And I think it sort of prompted you towards yes. Not exactly. I haven't seen the UI to know for sure, but my understanding is that if you just sort of went, yeah, 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 whatever, you ended up with the setting being auto join meetings. Okay. At, at that point, any link that anyone tricked you into clicking that was a Zoom link would just turn on your webcam and join you to a meeting under the control of the attacker. Wow. So that's the ultimate rickrolling, right? Instead of you seeing a video, they see you. So, so that's many, many shades of company, bad. Bert? Yeah, personally, I'm boycotting them. Um, as far as I'm concerned, you don't get to dirty your bib this much. <laughs> that's that's too bad. So the, the, the worst part isn't that they installed something that you didn't ask for or they didn't tell you about. The worst part isn't <laughs> that they wrote poor code. The worst part is they did it on purpose and said they weren't going to undo it. And at one point, they actually, their official line was that it couldn't be undone. Oh, right. And the, the, the security community went, oh, really? Um, and that, that didn't go over very well. Uh, Apple didn't really say much in public. Apple just went and added um, to, so Apple have the big security updates, and they also have a daily check-in that your Mac does by default, unless you tell it not to to check in for urgent security issues and small patches can get sent down this way. It's a feature Apple don't use very often. I think they've think it's about three or four times it's been used, but it's, hmm. it, it's in there. And so if you go on your Mac and you go to system preferences and you go to security updates, software updates, sorry, and then you go to the advanced tab, the bottom checkbox is install system data files and security updates. So the system data files are the daily virus definition updates for XProtect. And those security updates are the ones that just happen when there's an emergency. And Apple reserved those for real problems. And they considered a web server that you could access from the LAN and trigger into doing things to be a real problem. And so they pushed a security update to remove the web server. I love that. Like that was in the middle of the kerfuffle, right? Yeah, and they didn't say it up front. They just did it. And the only effect removing this web server has, it doesn't stop Zoom working. It just means that you have to say, yes, you may use my webcam. The same thing they said couldn't be done. Yeah, so basically, Zoom, oh, it would be really difficult to remove this web server. And Apple just like, it's gone. So if you have Zoom currently installed, does that mean the web server just got uninstalled by Apple? Yes, it does. If you uninstalled Zoom a while ago, Allison, does mm-hmm. it mean that they removed the web server? It does. Ah, sweet. Yes. So before Apple did that, we were ex- we were waiting. Zoom had promised an update. I think they promised it for Saturday. I haven't checked back to see if it came out. But they were going to have their update remove the web server because they had to do a hundred. They had to do a complete climb down on a one eighty on this. Um. So their initial quote was. We feel that this is a legitimate solution to a poor user experience problem, enabling our users to have faster one-click-to-join meetings. Mm-hmm. So that was their day one response. That became, initially, we did not see the web server or video on posture as significant risks to our customers, and in fact, felt that these were essentially essential to our seamless join process. 
But in hearing the outcry from our users in the past 24 hours, we have decided to make the update to our service. Wow. And it's, egg, I'm sorry. Egg all over face. They were at least good enough to acknowledge their initial position. Yeah. And that they were changing because of outcry from the community. And that's more honest than you usually get in these PR things. So I will give them that. But that's it. That, that's as far as I'm going to give them. Yeah. So we've ended up in the right place. I was an awful lot of Sturm and, of Sturm and Drang to get us here. But we're all good because either Apple has your back or Zoom has your back. But your back is had. I think people are going to have to work extra special hard to get me to agree to you do a Zoom meeting in the future. Yeah, if anyone's listening, I'm not. I don't care. Right. So that that would have been our only security medium until yesterday yeah. when someone called Allison and sent me a little ping going, have you seen this? Uh-oh. So 25 million Android devices infected with Agent Smith malware. <clears throat> Excuse me. So security researchers from the cybersecurity firm Checkpoint have released details of a massive malware campaign that has successfully infected 25 million Android devices around the world, 300,000 of them in the United States of America. Wow. Now, the malware's primary distribution mechanism was via third-party app stores in China. So I guess that means pirated apps for people in the US. Hmm. But it did a lot of its spreading by exploiting a vulnerability in Android that allowed the app to hijack genuine apps as those apps were in the process of updating themselves with a software oh. update. Oh, that's nasty. It is nasty because what you ended up with was legitimate copies of things like WhatsApp and the Opera browser that had an extra little payload along with, with the legitimate app. So you as the end user had a fully functional WhatsApp, but it was playing host to the malware. Mm. And any permission you had granted WhatsApp, the malware had now piggybacked on. So if WhatsApp was allowed to read your SMS messages, well, the malware is now allowed to read your SMS messages. If WhatsApp was allowed to use your camera, the malware is now allowed to use your camera. You get how, invis how, how insidious this is. That's awful. I mean, how it do you, is awful. how do they, uh, <laughs> sorry, I know I was supposed to have read everything I send you, but I hadn't read that piece of it. So did, uh, did Google fix the vulnerability that caused that? I assume by now. Well, I'm not sure they've been fixed every vulnerability because they mentioned the word plural, oh, but one of the primary vulnerabilities in use was patched in 2017. Oh, no. but a lot of Android devices don't get those. And I know that a new phone you buy today is much, much, much more likely to get security updates than a new phone you bought three years ago. But that's not going projecting backwards in time. So there's still an awful lot of phones that are still fully functional as far as the user is concerned, that are insecurable and are actually not really fully functional if you expect a secure existence. But people think they're fully functional. And that's why it's possible in 2019 to have 25 million infected Android devices, largely through a bug that was fixed two years ago. I do believe there's 25 million unpatched devices. That seems... Right, but around the rest of the world, Android is way more popular than iOS. Oh, I know. I know. 
it's it's like so, 90, 80 or 90%, but still how many how many wow. <laughs> that's yeah. that's just right. really appalling. It is, and if you think about countries like India, they have huge populations. And they're the places where Android is way, way, way more popular than iOS. Right, right. You know, you'd, you'd be proud of something I wrote. Um, I learned about this through a, uh, a local user group, a, a guy who's, who's fairly intelligent, but has a, I don't know, his style of writing makes me want to argue with him at every point. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you would have argued too. He posted this vulnerability and he said, you should all congratulate yourselves on choosing iOS because it's more secure. No further discussion required. I was like, oh, I'm not going to leave that. Uh, <laughs> you could have said any sentence right before that, and I would argue with you. And so I quoted uh, and, and gave a link to the, uh, the piece you did on how much work Google has done to, uh, to improve the security over the last few years and, and said, you know, I'm still really glad I got lucky and chose the iPhone first, but your statement's not right. So Yeah. And... I mean, like you said in that discussion, Apple have an easier job and it is Google are always going to be playing catch up because they just have a bigger hill to climb. But they're doing a really good job of climbing that hill. Yeah. I mean, other than contacting everybody who has an old phone and sending them a new one, I don't know what they would do to fix this. I mean, and given that it's open, you know, it's effectively open source ish. We, we, well, we're so not getting into that argument. Uh, well, let's call it open source. Um, it's not even really Google's fault that people sold terrible phones with their OS, but arguably they shouldn't have set their OS up the way that, yeah, it's it's complicated. Yeah. It seemed like a really good idea at the time. No, I've been saying it's a bad idea from day one, but it was a really oh, wait, financially wait a sound... Open source is not a bad idea from day one. Bart. Oh, no, not, not open source. No, the model of having the handset makers and the carriers get yeah. to wiggle their stuff in. Yeah, that's not what I said. What I was saying was open source was a good idea. It sounds like oh no yeah no idea. I'm a huge fan of open source yeah. says the Linux guy yeah, I was wondering when you were arguing with that one <laughs> you know that's not my argument no the Android model was just that idea that because the carriers were so used to having their way before they were computers when they were just phones yeah and that model never translated well to computers in your pocket and Google didn't see that up front and that's how we ended up in this mess. And it's really hard to, to roll back, you know, start the way you mean to finish is it, it, that's a cliche for a reason. So if, if those phones can't be patched and it, it, does that mean that they, they can't get this malware removed? I mean, they thought they had real versions of, of WhatsApp. They can't ever fix it. Yeah, to be honest, if your phone isn't getting security oh. updates, you need a new phone. There's no way around that. Oh. I know. And how do they even know? I mean, well, okay. So at the moment, bit. this so this this malware has the ability to do really horrible things, but it's always about money, and a really good way to get money is through ad fraud. Mm. So you basically simulate ad clicks on people's devices. Or you inject your own ads, replacing the legitimate ads on people's websites so that you basically get paid for putting up all those impressions. Okay. So what they're actually using this superpower they have for is to defraud ad companies, not to actually attack the user of the phone. So what the user will experience is really intrusive pop-up ads and things like that. Okay. So Which is bad. Hopefully a poor enough but, experience that they throw their phones away. Might be silver lining. 
But the vulnerability isn't limited to that. That's just how they're monetizing it at the moment, because that's how you can make money easily. There's no reason you couldn't use the same superpower to inject your malware into common banking apps and pop through a few extra transactions. Right. And they could do one now and another one later and another one later, right? Because they own you. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh. And there's 25 million devices, so you only have to steal a dollar from everyone, and you've made a pretty tidy profit for the week. Wow. This is a really depressing story, Bart. I'm sorry to say it is. So, basically, <laughs> well, the security researchers come up with, well, between the, you know, the security researchers come up with three pieces of advice. Keep your phone patched. And I will add to that, and if it can't be patched, you actually genuinely need a new phone. You cannot have a phone that is internet that is connected to the internet if it cannot be patched. I'm sorry, it is not fit for purpose. The next bit of advice they gave is only download apps from the Play Store, which reminds me, we skipped another really horrible bit. Oh. So there were 10 million downloads in the Play Store that had a dormant variant of this malware in it, which was waiting for a trigger word to be inserted in an ad. And had that trigger word been sent, those 10 million copies would have burst into life. And that was from the App Store. So nothing... That was from the App Store. Not not pirated anything. Yes. But they caught it? Now, who... Google removed those apps once they were once the security researchers gave them the virus signature. They mm-hmm. scanned the store, found the apps, pulled them out. And luckily, the key, the trigger word was never sent. But there were ten million sleeper apps waiting to be woken up. Wow. Yeah. Sorry, I forgot that bit. It just keeps getting worse. Yeah. Uh, so the third piece of advice from the researchers is run an ad blocker. And I will quote. Ad blockers aren't just there to block ads. So the researchers point out there's a long history of ads being used to trigger vulnerabilities within legitimate sites and apps, because the ad is usually from a third-party ad network. And so if there's a known problem with JPEGs, we'll just buy an ad and put a malicious JPEG in. And then that malicious JPEG is delivered through, like, you know, a really legitimate app like, you know, the Economic Times or something, you know, or The Economist, like something really, really legitimate you can get your malware into if you buy the right ad. Mm. So they're saying just block ads because they're a vector for all sorts of analysis. In this case, they were a vector for the trigger word for the malware you'd got on another way. You know, we all want to know what the trigger word was, don't you? Uh, Oh, it was in the story. It was something like, um, like infectors. No, it wasn't even like colloquial. It was, I think it was like infect or activate or something else. It was pretty on the nose. Wow. No, no, it's very disappointing. I wanted something cool and nerdy, like a reference or something, you know? <laughs> There's no place no. like home. Yeah, exactly. There's no place like 127.0.0.1. I have a t-shirt that says that. <laughs> you knew what I meant, didn't you? <laughs> I did, yeah. <laughs> Actually, I want to buy, I want to buy a, what, I don't really want to spend the money on it, but there's a welcome mat for the front door of a house that says 127.0.0.1 suite 127.0.0.1. Oh, I like it. <laughs> anyway, that brings us to the end of our security mediuming for the day. So, notable security updates. Uh, July Android updates are out. Nine critical vulnerabilities patched. So, yet again, if your Android phone can't take the July Android update, you have nine more reasons to get a new Android phone. All right. Uh, it was 
regular old patch Tuesday, 15 critical bugs fixed by Microsoft and Adobe. And there was a small amount of kerfuffle around the Windows 7 security patches because they included a patch which is a bit of a Rorschach test. You can either interpret it as a legitimate tool to help with the controlled end-of-lifing of Windows 7, or you can interpret it as a plot by Microsoft to force Windows 10 on people who don't want it. It's it's far like concerned it's a completely legitimate thing. It's some telemetry so that Microsoft know which of the machines running Windows 7 can be patched to Windows 10 because they have the hardware support. So they're basically trying to figure out what percentage of Windows 7 users are we asking not just to upgrade, but to spend actual money on actual new hardware? That's that probably important for Microsoft to know that. But then the other argument is, well, why? maybe if you just told them that up front in a more open and honest way, rather than having it be discovered by someone digging through the small print and then it going out on social media, maybe this wouldn't have been a kerfuffle. So, you know, take your pick. Anyway, it's it seems harmless to me and it seems sensible to me, but that doesn't mean Microsoft were right to do it the way they did it. Yeah. Much smarter way to do it. Yeah. Security news in the notable news section. Um, security researchers found the absolute motherload of um how smart devices can go wrong, I guess. So, oh, no. Orvibo is a brand name that do a whole bunch of smart home devices. And if you look for them on uh, Amazon or whatever, you'll find they have a large range of products at very affordable prices. Unfortunately, all of their devices are phoning home very regularly with far more information than they really should be. So the log entries contain things like usernames, email addresses, plain text passwords, your wireless networks and things like that, which I thought was a nice touch, and precise location data when available. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, and unfortunately, as you know, if they were phoning home over HTTPS and doing it all securely, it would be bad, but we wouldn't know about it. How do we know they're doing this? Well, their database were these billions of records are being collected was unsecured and if you knew the IP address you could just read it without a username or password. Oh no. You could watch in real time as all these devices phoned home with all this information. Oh my gosh. And you said so these, basically, are, these are for sale all over the place? Well Amazon apparently had a whole bunch of devices according to Naked Security I think. Yeah it was Naked Security we were saying that if you had searched for them in, on Amazon you find lots of them. Uh. Are they still there? <laughs> well, at the last story I read from the security researchers, the database was still online when they went live with the story because they had failed to get it taken down. Oh, my gosh. Really? Now, they didn't put the URL or the IP address into their post. So they didn't tell everyone, here's, here's how you get in. But they say that the last time they checked, they were still able to get in. So I just checked horrific. and there's a whole bunch of Orvibo devices out there. Yeah. On Amazon. Wow. Yeah, so this is about as badly wrong as IoT can go. Yeah. It's sort of the, the promise of the evil that's been predicted. Yeah. Or the, or the, the clean uh, the versus sloppiness, maybe. Well, it's both, right? 
So the sloppiness is how we know they were up to the creepiness. Well, uh, so you're saying they shouldn't have had usernames and passwords? And email addresses and precise location data every time you interacted with your home device? No, they should not be collecting that. Apple are certainly not collecting all that when you're using HomeKit. What HomeKit webcam are you talking about? Well, there's no way that every time you check that your home that, that your HomeKit devices are constantly sending Apple your precise date, your location, your wireless passwords, your email address, and your names. Wireless e- email or wireless password. I can see that. Um, the thing. These things aren't like these things are just constantly pinging back with enough information that you can geolocate people through time like this is really freaky stuff that's being sent back which you wouldn't even know they were sending back the creepy stuff if they hadn't been so sloppy with it okay like it's just it's how not to do iot Mm. i mean we all want the cool but we'd like it not to be big brother yeah speaking of big brother China is forcing tourists to install to install text stealing malware at its border. Want to come that. into our country? Have some government made malware. Right, it's it's mandatory, right? Yeah. So this is why people travel to China with burner phones. I would say if you weren't doing that already, probably a good time to start now. Yeah. There's a lot of countries I want to visit and that one is not actually near the top of my list. Yeah, to, to be honest, ditto. Mm. Uh, we now switch more towards the positive news. I think that's enough depressing news for, for a while. <laughs> I hope so. Far. Facebook have announced that it's updating their ranking algorithm to downrank what I am calling quackery. I believe the official term they're using is outlandish medical claims. Hmm. This is good. So they're not going to sit there deleting the stuff off Facebook, but they're going to stop pushing it into people's feeds, and that's, that is definitely more socially responsible. Hmm. Uh, Apple have proactively disabled the walkie-talkie feature on Apple Watch because they were made available of a bug that would allow eavesdropping in certain situations. Details have not been released. It's been responsibly disclosed. Apple are working on a patch. So let me and they will not. Here. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was and... just going to quickly say they will not re-enable the feature until it is patched. So I should have filed a radar when that happened to us. But I, I'm I'm really careful when I report a bug that I can reproduce it and I can give you the steps to reproduce it and I can describe categorically how it happened. And I could not do that. But we were at Lindsay right. and Nolan's house and I forget which one of them I called. I think I called Lindsay on walkie talkie and she was in the other room and it was Nolan's phone started playing the both of us talking. No, Nolan's watch started playing Ooh. on his watch, the two of us talking. And we all went, wait, what? Wait, did what? that just happen? And and we hung up and tried to get it to happen again, and we couldn't get it to happen again. But it absolutely happened to us. I mean, we had four people. Steve was there, too. We all saw it happen wow. and went, uh-oh, that isn't good. So I think I actually found this bug, but I didn't know how to report it. And I guess if you couldn't recreate it, you wouldn't have been able to give them very much to go on. Right. It's like, uh, made a call, showed up on a different phone. Shouldn't have done that. (laughs) Expected behavior. Speak to not the person who, yeah. I didn't call. Wow. Yeah. Okay, well, that 
pretty good. That anecdote certainly shows it's real. Yeah, I mean, I didn't think they'd believe me if I couldn't reproduce it, right? I mean, I would. It's hard to know. I mean, you know, it's it's a needle in a haystack thing because they get so much nutso stuff sent to them every day. How can you tell the one bit of true from the torrent of nonsense? Right, and and you know that when I think I know what I'm talking about, I will tell people. But I was just like, I don't know how to explain that this happened because it doesn't seem possible. And I, like you, I will report stuff to Apple and I have, it happened to me twice with Aperture where a member of the Aperture development team actually contacted me to ask me for more information. Really? Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. The US Federal Elections Commission have made it clear that political campaigns can accept discounted cybersecurity services without that being considered a campaign donation. This is huge. We had a whole bunch of charities offering to help secure the candidates in 2020 from what happened to John Podesta, etc. in the last campaign. And they ran into the problem that offering help to campaigns could be considered an in-kind donation and therefore campaign fraud. Ah. And everyone was like, please, FEC, make it clear that we can secure the election without doing election fraud. And the Federal Elections Commission went, you know something? That's a really good idea. We'll make an exception to the rule. So a clarification of the rule, basically saying this is not a donation. Just this one kind of service from this one kind of company. So an exception. Yes. Yes. Yeah, Yeah. exception or I I mean, I'm not sure whether the technical I'm not sure the technicalities, whether it's. I don't know the wording of the rule, but basically a clarification has been issued that this is okay. You may do this. And that's what matters. Yeah. And it's not often that FEC rules are important, but this this By the way, you're saying FEC, I think it's FTC? No, no, you're you're one story ahead. I am. Federal elections. Ah. Thank you. (laughs) Moving on to the Federal Trade Commission. (laughs) Okay. Uh, the apparently, well, okay, so it's being reported that the Federal Trade Commission have approved a $5 billion settlement with Facebook to end the long running investigation into their use of personal data. Facebook had set this money aside already in their latest earnings report. So not only did the markets not punish the company when news of this came out, uh, the stock went up. Ugh. So I'm going to put on my editorializing hat here. And say that while for most companies a $5 billion fine would be earth shattering, when you're the size of Facebook, it's a drop in the ocean. It is actually one month's profit. Not one month's revenue, one month's profit. Wow. So John Gruber summed it up by saying to Facebook, $5 billion is just the cost of doing business. Yeah. I also have a link to an opinion piece on The Verge that I think hits the nail on the head, and I just have two choice quotes. Here's another way to say it. The biggest FTC fine in United States history increased Mark Zuckerberg's net worth. What lesson would you learn from that? Would anyone? I, I don't think that's a fair quote. because Well, the stock went up. Hang on. Hang on. Let me explain my position before you argue with me. You said that they put it into their latest earnings report. What happened on their latest earnings report? Because that's when it was announced. So everything is about the future. Once this is over, bad news is over, that always makes stock go up. 
That's a, that's a, a common thing. That's not that because they had to pay $5 billion, they got more money. That isn't what happened. That That's a, that's a uh, misinterpretation. I, mean, I see your point, but I also think the stock went up on their earnings call, too. Well, there might have been other stuff that had to do with that. The, the market might have gone up right then. I mean, there's so many variables to that. That 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 is a that is an unfair conclusion. I mean, no, okay, no company's going to say, "I hope I get a five billion dollar uh, fine so that my stock goes up." But if you made your twenty billion profit on the back of practices you know are going to get you a five billion dollar fine, the way you would look at you could look at that if you're purely spreadsheet you know turn off emotion turn off morals just make money then if it costs me five billion to make 20 billion profit okay that's a different statement that's the first thing that you quoted or your your what john gruber said but the second one that's 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 hooey my okay i i would the way i would like zuckerberg is not poorer because of this so this really hasn't been a punishment (laughs) okay what happened to their I mean, earnings? I can see. The, I, I mean, I, I can see the, your point. Sorry. What happened to the earnings when they reported that they were setting this money aside? What happened to their earnings when they found out they were being under investigation? Those are the those are the things that you have to know in order to to make a statement like that. Uh, well, there's six over six months. Their stock is up. So I don't remember the exact date of their earnings call, but their stock is up over six months. Uh, it's up over a year as well. That yeah, but that's that's not the question I'm asking. I'm asking when when they had that when they made that announcement or when it came out that they were under investigation. What happened then? Because that's the actual uh, the actual statement that you'd have to look at to make that. I, I just okay, think, well, I think everything else you said. I, I I see your point, but not that one quote. Okay, but they, the, the earnings call where they said we set aside five billion is within the last six weeks or so, and their stock is up from six months ago. The stock is up from one month ago, so it's it, it's hard to see a punishment whether you say wherever you put it back in time. I I, it's, I just don't see the data that this stung. Okay. It's a pity because I'd love to, I'd love to see this graph. I, I disagree, but go ahead. <laughs> let's okay. let's move yeah, on. We've yeah. had this to death now. Yes, yeah, and it's it's yeah, yeah. Beside the point. Anyway, finally, just to say, just this sort of collection of stories, I guess, across my radar that this all happened in the same week. It would appear that GDPR is starting to bite. Um, British Airways just. It looks like they're going to get fined 183 million British pounds for a single data breach. Now, it was a fairly odious breach, but it's, you know, that's the price of a breach. Right, right. And it also looks like uh, Marriott are in for a substantial fine, too. So Let that's me, progress. One question I don't remember hearing the answer to when we talked about GDPR originally. Where does all this money go? It de- it it depends on where the company. So the the fine is levied by the country where they're headquartered. So it would go like a fine paid to the FTC. It goes into the government. Okay, so the European Union is going to make money off of these things that affected the rest of the the world. Um, I mean, they're yeah, the ones like holding them accountable. Ticket. So I'm not saying they shouldn't, but. Yeah. yeah, I mean it's a it's a government fine, so it will be in the country. So it's not the European Union; it's whichever country, because GDPR is implemented by 
the each country has an office for data protection. So it's basically the equivalent of the F, probably trade actually, probably the FTC equivalent within each country. So Ireland is where a lot of these companies are headquartered. So Ireland will be levying a lot of these fines. So let's see, the British Airways ones was the UK Information Commissioner's yes. office made the announcement. Does that, and so that means it goes into, uh, into the UK's coffers? It, that one does because British Airways are a British company headquartered in Britain. But where it's headquartered doesn't matter, right? It does for GDPR, actually. Um, well, if it's so, headquartered in California. Well, their European base is in Britain. Okay, so, so Facebook headquartered are headquartered in America, but they're... Right. Sorry, I think I stepped on you. I, I, oh, I, I was just here. asking. Uh, so it's not the, the headquarters, but wherever the... Well, it's confusing. I mean, because if you look at something like Marriott, that affects a lot of countries, right? Not a lot of countries in Europe. Right. But they must have a, a, a some sort of corporate structure vested in Europe somewhere because otherwise they couldn't run a European hotel. So they, they have hotels here. So there must be some sort of corporate entity that fits somewhere into their corporate structure that is registered as a corporation in a European country. Hmm. I'm just trying to speculate on how that would work with a company that is only in the United States, for example, but does something truly stupid and you guys hold them accountable. I don't think we could. They do business there. If they have no presence here, we don't have any way to... You could hold them accountable, but they might not have to pay. (laughs) Maybe that's how it works. Yeah, basically, how do you have a court case against an entity that isn't within your jurisdiction? Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, you could wag your finger a lot, and yeah. you could tell them that they owe you money. But how do you how do you make do anything with that? You? Yeah. Huh. All right. Idle speculation and, with without uh, without. Yeah, and corporate structures are weird. Yeah. Like yeah, corporate structures are weird. Okay. Well, I'm glad somebody's holding somebody accountable somewhere. Yes. Amen. Um. Suggested reading then. Um, so again, we're just highlighting these rather than going into them in detail. So PSA's tips and advice. Nice one from TechSpot. The complete list of alternatives to all Google products. So if you've decided <laughs> I'm done with this Google stuff, this might be helpful. That's funny. Oh, we spent the time doing that. Yeah, I think it's a nice service. Um, just to let everyone know that we had mentioned before that Apple would be turning off Back to My Mac. Well, that is now a true fact. Apple have turned off Back to My Mac. So there's a nice post from iMore with alternatives to Back to My Mac. That may be of use to people. And then finally, for those of you like myself and Allison, who own our own domain names, the U.S.'s National Cybersecurity Center has a nice, concise, well-worded six-page um, alert on an ongoing campaign of domain hijacking, and it includes some really simple and human-readable advice for how to protect your domain. Oh. And while a lot of it's aimed at larger organizations, an awful lot of it is completely relevant to anyone who owns any domain because it doesn't really matter whether you're a massive company or whether you're me, you have a domain registrar, and that domain registrar is where you would go to start messing with your DNS settings. So enabling two-factor Roth on your domain registrar is as good of advice for Bart Bouchots as it is for Facebook. Yeah. Huh. As I say, six pages, not too small a font. I was kind of pleased. And one of those <laughs> is a big cover page. 
Oh, nice, nice. Yeah. So anyway, you know, nice piece of advice there from the U.S.'s National Cybersecurity Center. Hey, not, Notable not breaches to, in privacy. Not, go, oh, sorry, not to go back and, and beat up on something that we just spent an hour arguing about, but uh, on, on Facebook's profit, uh, the, the amount of the $5 billion fine, did you say it was one month's worth of profit? Or did I miss That's that? the number I heard. So 22 divided by 12. It's one quarter, according to MarketWatch. I won't, I'm not, a, I will, take, I'm re- I'm I have heard one thing, you've heard another, I will not. Okay, I'm, I'm one of us is market wrong. watch right now, so uh, my memory is not good, but I can, uh, right now that's what I'm seeing. Anyway. Okay, it's, yeah, it's I, still, I won't argue. It's a, it's a trunk load full of money, and they make four trunk loads full of money at the very least. Yeah, I heard annual profit was 22 billion. Hmm. What was that annual revenue? And anyway, yeah, but it's, it's, it's to normal companies, these would be big numbers, but Facebook is so far from normal. Yeah, yeah. Okay, sorry to interrupt. Keep going. No, no, you're not fine. Uh, so notable breaches and privacy violations. This is obviously all bad news. Um, I'm just going <laughs> to, uh, we're not going to dwell just here too long, us. but um, <laughs> I just Amazon's know. Alexa keeps your data with no expiration date and shares it with third parties, which is nice. Seen it have some reporting on that. Uh, the VRT, which is Belgium's national broadcaster, or Flanders' national broadcaster within Belgium, um, they did some reporting and discovered that Google employees are eavesdropping um, even in your living room, which is kind of a little bit scary. This is Google Voice basically doing an Alexa. Using um, uh, smart TVs or using I think it was Google Home was the branding on the story. Okay. Great. Uh, And they're sharing it with contractors, which is nice. Then 7-Eleven managed to launch a service in Japan with a level of security naivete that I don't think the average five-year-old would let out the door. You could enter any email address you liked to do a password reset to. Not the email address on file, just whatever email address you'd, you'd like your password sent to. Oh, what do you mean it wasn't your password? Oopsie daisies, I guess I'm buying some free food. This was unbelievable. And how much money was lost as a result of this one? $500,000 of customers' money that 7-Eleven allowed to be stolen. I I assume they're not going to reissue that app. uh, (laughs) It needs a ground-up rewrite, I would say. Yeah. If that slipped through the cracks, what else slipped through the cracks? Yeah. Uh, Scary Granny Zombie is a game. Uh, It's been massively abusing people's privacy by slurping up all sorts of stuff and spawning all sorts of horrible phishing attacks. So if you've been playing Scary Granny Zombie, I think you are the zombie and the granny's probably still scary. Apparently this was the thing on Android. Mm. Um. Dating app Jack got fined for leaving private photos up for a year, which I guess is nice. And we have another one of these mystery databases exposing hundreds of millions of records found online. Your typical stuff. Uh, some so in notable IoT vulnerabilities, we have another Zapato smart locks causing some serious whoopsies. Um, open ses- yeah, Open Sesame smart hub hacked to open front doors is the headline. Uh, Medtronic rushes to replace insulin pumps after a flaw found, so yay. Um, 
And then security news. I put this down in CS reading because it's uber depressing, but security <laughs> researchers found that a whole bunch of Android apps ignore your user permission. So you say to the app, no, you may not track my location. And the app goes, yeah, whatever. I'm going to use your IP address. I'm going to use XF data in your photos. I'm going to use every single side channel I can get my hands on to figure out your location and share it anyway. Oh, so they're following the letter of what they sort of said. Yeah. Like, like, I'm not going to use the GPS, but I can still find you. Yeah, because the OS is stopping them using the GPS and they're just working around it. So they're not taking it as an indication of user preference. They're taking it as a limitation enforced by the OS and working around it. Oh. Which is charming. That is and there's loads more stuff in there. Well, I want to kill myself now, Bart. This was fun. <laughs> yeah, so there's, again, there's some fun stuff in opinion and analysis. Some, some sort of fascinating stuff about the configure botnet. Um and then in propeller beanie territory, there's some really depressing stuff about <laughs> open PGP and some fairly <laughs> weedsy stuff about open ID having a spat with Apple about signing with Apple. It's all for now. There's no there there because it's it's all still in beta and stuff that, that we might want to talk about that for reals is when signing with Apple comes out of beta. But for now, it's just it's just a bunch of nerds arguing with each other over, over how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Okay. Uh, but there's open letters, so it's, it's obviously serious. So let's jump to suggested listening. That's that sounds okay. more fun. Now these aren't all um, necessarily pleasant, but they're good quality. Uh, so the Checklist Podcast, which is one of Ken Ray's many contributions to the internet, their episode this week covers Zoom, OpenID's letter to Apple. And the big GDPR fine. So basically, lots of the stories that made it into my show notes are really well covered in a half-hour show. So if you want more, episode 145 of The Checklist is a good way to go. That was a good conversation. By the way, I, I really uh, like that he's... I'm not listening to The Checklist podcast, but it has upped his game in what he talks about on Mac OS Ken as a result, because I found out about the Zoom issue through Mac OS Ken. Yeah, I've really noticed that, that his coverage of all the security stuff at Mac OS Ken has gotten way better because Augustrometer is educating him massively over on Checklist. Yeah. Cool. Uh, the guys over at Reply All have hit it out of the park recently. So I had already picked one episode, and then this week's episode came out, and now I've ended up, I'm going to recommend two episodes in a row of the same podcast because they're both superb. So you you may or may not have heard of the term dark pattern. No. Uh -uh. So a design pattern is a standard way of approaching a problem. And a dark pattern is a malicious standard pattern designed to trick users. It's a way that's known to succeed at tricking people. So it's hmm. called a dark pattern. Okay. And they go into one example of a dark pattern in use that is costing Americans billions of dollars a year that they shouldn't be paying to into it, but they are. Fascinating on the whole concept of dark patterns. There's nothing like the worked example to turn these abstract concepts real. And so if you're wondering, you know, what is a dark pattern? How does it work? You will understand having listened to this episode of Reply All. You won't be happy, <laughs> but you'll be well informed. And then the other one, is, again, you won't be happy, but if you don't, like, we always hear about how hard it is to be a moderator for YouTube. Right. But actually, if you listen to this episode, you will 
you will grok how horrible a job it is and just how big of a problem it is to keep social media social. It's a really hard problem to solve. It was really insightful to get the inside scoop on this. It's kind of hard to describe why it's so good, but I, I learned so much from those two episodes. I just, I felt that given how much we talk about these things, I thought I just had to recommend these two podcast episodes. So they're, they're about half an hour each from Reply All, but oh, they're good. both superb. Okay. So now to cleanse your palate, in honor of Apollo 11, OrbiTrack, which is a cool iOS app for tracking satellites, is free on July 20th. So if you want to have uh, OrbiTrack, you can pick it up for free in honor of Apollo 11 on July 20th. Oh, that's fun. It is fun. And then given that the Nasillacast has this long tradition of supporting accessibility, I'm going to recommend a 100% fun and palate cleansing installment of the 99% Invisible podcast. It's called The Universal Page, and it's about reading without seeing. It's quite broad-ranging, but trust me, if you have enjoyed Alison's coverage of accessibility over the years, you will thoroughly enjoy this episode of 99% Invisible. Ah, very cool. That's That's a nice palate cleanser. Yeah, we need it. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you one more thing. In the background, I've been uh, researching the uh, Facebook stock price as a as a function of when the announcement came about the um, uh, investigation by the FTC uh-huh. into them, and I cannot find a correlation between that announcement and a drop in stock price. The stock did drop a bunch in March, but that's not when that announcement happened. That happened in April, and it goes down like a dollar. So I may have to return. I really wish you'd found the massive correlation. I know, I know, me too. You you know I looked for a long time while we were chatting. I'm just amazed at how well you can multitask because you were still in this conversation. Yeah. There would just be silence on the mic if I tried to do that. (laughs) Well, I did read ahead in the notes uh, earlier, so I had a good idea of where we were going. So that might have given me a competitive edge. But uh, and I'm just looking at graphs and stuff. (laughs) Alison, if if I have to like you know, move something on my desk. I, you could tell me that the world had ended, and we're going, hey, what? <laughs> Women only think they're multitasking, by the way. But we're convinced it's fast of context it. switching. Yeah, there you go. That's a better description, right? Yeah, but I can't do it either. W- whatever you call it, however it technically works, I can't do it. <laughs> I like it. All right. Well, hey, this was a thoroughly depressing episode of uh, Security Bits. I sure hope you come back and do this again soon. Indeed. Well, look, obviously you should say patched and say and say secure, but listen to that episode of the 99% Invisible. We've all earned it, and it, trust me, it'll make you smile. All right, great. Thanks, Bart. Okie dokie. As I say, stay patched, stay secure. Talk to you soon. Well, that is going to wind up a very long show for this week. Do not forget to send in your dumb questions. Be like Steve Davidson. Send them in to allison at podfeet.com. You can add comments and suggestions as well. You can follow me on Twitter at Podfeet. You'll find out about announcements about the show and some other glop that I put on Twitter. And as we talked earlier, if you want to become a patron, you can go to podfeet.com slash Patreon. You can join our Facebook group at podfeet.com slash Facebook. You can join our Slack flat group, our Slack group at podfeet.com slash Slack. And if you'd want to join in the fun of the live show like the audience did tonight for an excessively long show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening. 
stay subscribed.